20 named storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. Why El Nino couldn't slow the hurricane season down. Where the 23 season stands compared to other active years, and the only hurricane to hit the U.S. coast. This is NTWC Live. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live. Good to be back with you all on the sixth day of December, the end, past the end of the 2023 hurricane season. This is our wrap-up show. We're going to talk about all things 2023 hurricanes, Atlantic, Pacific, and anything else that comes to mind during the course of the program. Of course, Bill Reed is with us this morning, former director of the National Hurricane Center. Good to have you along, Bill. Brian McNoldy from University of Miami is with us today to talk uh, some of the historic facts. And Mark Sutter from Hurricane Track is with us as well today. I think we're going to have a fascinating hour. Uh, Dr. Hal Needham is somewhere in Europe. I'm not sure where he is at the moment. He may pop in at some point during this. Last time I heard he was on the fast ferry from Morocco to southern Spain. Maybe the Rock and Gibraltar got him. Who knows? But he's over there somewhere uh, having a good time. So the 2023 hurricane season is history. Uh, we got through it, and as a general rule, for, for those of us that live along the coast, it wasn't so bad. For a few, it wasn't so great, but overall, not such a bad season. So uh, before we get any farther, though, we want to thank our sponsors who are with us and have been with us all season long, many of whom have been with us from the very beginning of NTWC Live, and first and foremost, USAA. Thank you to USAA. You make these things a possibility, and we appreciate it more than you know. Um well, we came to you with this idea a long time ago. You jumped on board, not only with NTWC Live, but with the National Tropical Weather Conference itself. Uh, you've been proud sponsors from the very beginning, so we appreciate that very much. Of course, South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the host for the National Tropical Weather Conference when we're live and in person uh, every year in April. We'll be back there first week of April of 2024. Uh, if you like what you see on these podcasts, we encourage you to go to the website, sign up, and join us on South Padre Island in April of 2024 uh, for that. Of course, also Weather Boy, uh, we appreciate what they do, the weather company, uh, and all the folks who make these uh, these events a reality for us. We appreciate that. All right, Bill Reed, good morning, sir. Welcome back. And since we last talked, you've been kind of traveling the world, um, but you're back home and ready to talk about the hurricane season. Good morning. Good morning. I have a feeling how maybe at uh, one of the restaurants we ate at in Marbella, eating a really great swordfish steak and washing it down with some great Spanish beer. Who knows? <laughs> Sounds wonderful, right? Yeah. Looks like you got uh, some wall decorations now in your new place. Is that uh, Hurricane Dorian shots? Two pictures of Dorian. You see back there, one is uh, one is uh, taken okay. by Jim Eds. The one on this side, that's Jim Eds. You see his watch there from the, that uh, shows the minimum pressure in the middle of it. That's on this side of 9, 11.2 millibars. And the other is from Hurricane Hunters, the plane. You see the propeller. So, yeah, thanks to the Hurricane Hunters for that. So, yeah, finally getting this new office decorated with important stuff. Great. Great. Yeah, and I guess I guess the uh, the full blown rec recovery from uh, Tropical Storm Harold is is underway down your way. Well, you know, I, I got the chair back up sitting upright. So we have recovered pretty much uh, the, on, the the Red Cross has finally pulled out. And we're pretty good. I, I asked my newsroom um, on the last day of hurricane season as we were wrapping up the season. Um, I said, so, you know, y'all remember we at a tropical storm this year, nobody remember the name of it. Nobody, nobody had any recollection of it. That's how significant this was. So, uh, Harold was the name. I had to think about it again. Um, I think I did two cut-ins for that, and that was about it. We we survived. It, it's a it's a good example of impacts is what makes the difference. The uh, uh, a much stronger hurricane, a little tiny 
uh, I think it was even uh, Cat 3, maybe Cat 4, Hurricane Brett in 1999 uh, uh, came across the Padre Island north of you guys and augered in, wiped out a bunch of Santa Gertrudis on the on the King Ranch, and that's about it. People don't uh, people don't really remember that one either because it, it just wasn't that impactful. The, the impact we had on that was there was a, we actually had a tornado form right outside the TV station, and that's when we swung open the back doors of the TV station and then pointed to it. We could see the the rotating cloud on wow. that, and and it touched down about five miles from the station. Just a quick, fast moving storm, but that's when they cleared the studio. I was actually on the air saying, "If you're in this building, go to a safe place." While I'm standing in this giant garage door pointing, you know, and so they cleared the studio and finally the general manager came into the studio and he looks and he sees me out and, and the wind shifted and I started getting wet. It's pouring down rain. Uh, and the wind, you know, and all of a sudden I was, I was soaked. And the only person in the studio is a general manager. And I think he's going to tell me to come in and be safe. Now he tosses me a towel and says, keep going. You're doing great. And then he went back in, in, into hiding himself. So that was, that was my memory of Brett in 1999. Yeah. Well, uh, us meteorologists, uh, it, we put out all these these warnings telling people what to do. It should have the disclaimer on there that says, do as we say, not as we do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that applies to most of us. Yes, I yeah, agree. That's exactly right. The first thing I'm going to do when I hear a tornado warning is make sure my, uh, my uh, uh, phone's charged up so I can grab a picture of it. There you go. You see, <laughs> we're all alike. <laughs> I know. But, uh, hey, uh, we've got, uh, uh, you mentioned already, we've got... Uh, uh, Brian McNoldy coming to us from Miami. Brian has uh, has had a long and distinguished career so far between uh, Colorado State, working with some esteemed colle colleagues that have been developing our techniques like Mark D. Maria. Uh, he's now at the University of Miami. He works with my good friend, Sharon Majumdar, and, and I'm sure he works with a whole bunch of other people there, but I just forgot who they are. He'll fill me in if I need to. Uh, when he has nothing better to do, he writes a blog. He does things for Capital Weather Gang and, and maintains a Tropical Atlantic Headquarters uh, website with lots of valuable links. Uh, welcome to our show, Hal. Or, uh, Hal. Uh, <laughs> Brian. Thanks. You don't look like Hal. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. No, but we're, we're actually from the, the same place up in Pennsylvania, so it's okay. We all are. I think between you and I and Hal, we're, there's probably not a hundred miles difference from where we grew up. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's amazing. Well, uh, we talked earlier. I think what we're going to do is I got a little the uh, uh, slideshow to kind of re refresh people's memory of the season and bring up a few points. And uh, and uh, we'll, why don't we bounce back and forth? Anybody that's on the uh, on the panel here and, and uh, with questions and comments of what we got going there. So let me get this thing lit up. And I'll find it. Doo -doo. As you're doing that, my, my my final question before I mute myself is: Everybody's happy with the final four in football? Everybody's happy with that? <laughs> no, I still I still uh, rue the loss of the Southwest Conference. <laughs> I just figure our our Florida connection will be going. Wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> All right, go ahead. Bill. Very good. Well, there, uh, uh, there you have it up there. The the map of the season there, and a very active season for for uh, an El Nino. Uh, normally, in an El Nino, we ratchet down the nine, four, and one for on average, and some years are even a lot less than that. Uh, but uh, it, we were all talking with the seasonal forecast guys. Remember back in April and June and August, even uh, of of having no. Uh, analog type season, no similar 
thing where the sea temperatures were so much above normal at the same time we were having a, a moderate to strong uh, El Nino develop over the the peak of the hurricane season and uh, yeah, yeah, some of the, uh, the off the cuff statements I've seen is that the warm temperatures won. I think more study needs to be done than that, though. I'm sure that was a, a, a major pr uh, factor. I got a slide here we can break off and talk about that a little on. But uh, 20 named storms, uh, 19 if you're just talking about the normal season, uh, uh, January, just south of Halifax, he had this. A uh, uh, 70 knot storm that uh, if you just had no date on it and had the picture up there, you would have said, oh, it's August or September. That was an amazing event there. Uh, the seven hurricanes fits within the average. Oh, and the, the 20 name storms is tied for the fourth most with the 1933 season. Uh, seven hurricanes, three uh, major, which is within the long-term average. Uh, uh, the only uh, hurricane landfall in the USA was Idalia, which was a major hurricane uh, in the Florida Big Bend and uh, was uh, intensity wise, I think, was a record setter for for that that uh, region of the coast, at least since our record keeping has been going on. Otherwise, the Western Caribbean and Gulf had a quiet year. And if you just if you just chopped our map off somewhere in here. And only had a few storms. You say, oh, yeah, typical El Nino, nothing going on in the Western Caribbean. So uh, part of it looked like an El Nino year, and part of it looked like uh, everything was uh, all systems go. Uh, yeah, Bill, can I, can I hop in there quick? Great. I, I think related to that, it, it's really striking. Uh, so aside from the one and a half days of, of Italia being a, a hurricane in the Gulf, there was zero hurricane activity anywhere in the Caribbean. And again, aside from Idalia for one and a half days, the Gulf of Mexico, and then anywhere west of 72 degrees west in the Western Atlantic. It's a very strange map. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the, one of my first year flying hurricanes was uh, 72, which was a big honk in El Nino. And, uh, we only had one hurricane. Uh, uh, then it was uh, same neck of the woods. It was Agnes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, other than that, there was nothing of consequence in the Western Caribbean or Gulf. So not a big surprise, I guess. Uh, I like this visualization that our friend Michael Lowry uh, uh, put together. Uh, uh, basically, it's uh, taking all the cone forecasts and uh, and doing uh, how often they were in one and. Uh, the darker uh, colors represent uh, uh, more frequent coverage, and the uh, and the uh, lighter colors less. Uh, and it it basically highlights what we saw on the other map that the basically the Bermuda Triangle was not the place to be. They had, they were under the gun most of the much of the season uh, with our storm activity. And this thing is a, a number of hours in the cone on on the land on on the U.S. coastline. And <clears throat> how many years have you got? Uh, Florida and Texas have much less hours than Maine. <laughs> uh, that's very unusual. Several of the storms were, were still pretty powerful, like Lee, when they were going up into, into the uh, Atlantic Canada area, and, and they were close enough to Maine to warrant being in the cone. <clears throat> well, have the I look at the June forecast for verification. That's uh, the, the one that a lot of people are basing that do decision-making based on a seasonal basis. That's a, a prime used one. And, and as Phil points out, there's still pretty, uh, a lot of uh, 
uncertainty in the parameters they look at in April. So June, it starts homing in on. And uh, I, I just have the Colorado State NOAA forecasts up on this particular slide. And if you recall, this was their forecasts. Uh, while they were undershot the numbers of actual storms uh, uh, with hurricanes and major hurricanes, uh, I think it was a spot-on forecast, very good uh, seasonal forecast. And, and I think they're the more, uh, uh, if you just looked at hurricanes and major hurricanes as part of the seasonal forecast, you'd probably get a better verification because there's a lot of uh, variability in years where you get, uh, some years you get uh, four or five of these very short-lived uh, hybridy kind of storms that don't fit well with the the meteorological techniques is, is that kind of, is that am I making am I making sense Brian or <laughs> oh yeah yeah for sure there's 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 things that we would just consider just the fluff <laughs> you know no one will ever remember them yeah exactly uh, yeah the the retired names on there I think I'm thinking Edalia might get there but probably not it did it maybe not it didn't kill anybody. There are very many people, and uh, other and otherwise, uh, it was a fairly typical storm in that regard. Uh, so the factors that went into that forecast uh, again, the wind shear was was expected to be a limiting factor because of El Nino. It, it typically uh, shows up as as uh, moderate to strong anomaly, uh, uh, strong wind shear anomalies across the main development region. It was just the opposite. Uh, uh, I don't know what to attribute that to unless it had something to do with the much weaker than normal subtropical height of the north. Uh, any thoughts on that, Brian? I think you're probably right. Um, it, I mean, for, for sure, it's not what you expect during, during El Nino, as you said. Uh, that's, but uh, e even if it weren't an El Nino year, um, Usually the, the Caribbean is fairly high shear. It's just kind of known for that. It has a, there's a low level jet that zips through the central Caribbean mm -hmm. and creates pretty high shear on average. So to reduce it by that much probably is from the subtrop subtropical high being significantly weaker. Yeah, yeah, I can see. Yeah, that would make sense. It would, it would the gradient might be less, and you get a lower lower velocity sub uh, low level jet if you do that. Okay, uh, and again, the the shear was stronger than normal around the trough in the uh, in the uh, North Atlantic, and and coming around the 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 top of the of the big ridge that was out to the west. Uh, the sea surface temperatures, that was a question uh, Phil had at the beginning, how much that huge anomaly would persist. <clears throat> and the data is in and it's it's off the charts. The anomaly would, uh, uh, I mean, it's twice what it's been in any other year uh, uh, leading up to it. So it's just, it's a record that uh, really deserves a lot of study. I, I'm fascinated by it and, and I'd love to, love to learn more about how it uh, transpired and uh, and whether we can come up with any predictability on those because uh, these other anomalies are pretty standard I mean they're they're that's one of the reasons I think we've seen higher uh, an increase in our average number of storms over the the latest 30 year period is that we've had a persistent warmer than long-term average uh, uh, sea surface temperature across the uh, tropical Atlantic and it just makes sense it, it's a stable factor in there yeah. Anything to add on that, Brian? No, I, uh, not really. I think it's 
it's a it's a huge curiosity what happened with that um and we kind of saw i'll call it migrating marine heat waves i don't know that the heat wave itself was actually migrating or just appeared that way because they would come and go in different parts of the the atlantic but um toward the beginning of the season there was a very very strong marine heat wave up in the uk um then later parts of the season it was down off the west coast of africa uh we had south florida had a significant marine heat wave and then after that it was up in like the uh nova scotia newfoundland area just uh, I mean, the, the Atlantic as a whole was above average warmth, but these intense marine heat waves, I can think of those four off the top of my head that really st stood out and helped increase that. And I don't know why. Um, yeah, yeah. And, once, and I would think once you have that, especially at the in the in the peak of the hurricane season, the 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 that heat that's generated doesn't go away anytime soon there's nothing to mitigate it yeah yeah the, the ocean is not something that changes quickly and i guess really the a huge unknown at this point i mean the 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 atlantic even right now is still record warm yeah um, so the a huge question going forward is is it still going to be as we head into next hurricane season yeah. i'll hit that with the next slide but i almost forgot one point this is a linear the correlation line in here, but if you actually look at this carefully, it was it, it was trending up uh, uh, into the the mid 1940s, and it was kind of flat in there. And and I've been reading some stuff about aerosol content with our industrialization, and the the uh, the current thinking is that the this relatively uh, unchanging low low anomaly period there may have been a function of the aerosols. Uh, reducing the amount of heating going on to the ocean temperature, uh, and once the Clean Air Act kicked in and we started and we seriously reduced aerosol uh, pollution, that's when the heating of the ocean took off. So, have you, anybody on here have, have seen that? Any of those studies to uh, add to um, the? I mean, I've I, I've heard of that, um, and it could be an influence in it, um, but I think a larger slice of the pie is just part of just climate change in general. The, the ocean is a great sponge for the excess heat that's being created by the, the greenhouse gases and all that. I mean, we, we see some of it on land. Um, the temperatures on land are increasing too, but the ocean is a sponge for it. And it's, it's taking the large majority of, of the um, kind of the, the extra heat, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned that what's going to happen next. This was I found this intriguing, and again, Michael Lowry has great visualization skills. And and the the the, the bright red uh, uh, line is the current thirty-year uh, average. Uh, and this is we were we were running right along the the, the current average uh, through through winter time last year, and coming into spring, suddenly we started warming up. Uh, and we're still there. We're still off the charts. We're, we're not. We're warmer than we ever seen for this for December first across the tropical Atlantic. And uh, so, as Brian mentioned, the question remains: What's it going to be come June first next year? And I don't think anyone has the a technique that uh, I would confidently bet my money on. Uh, steering wise, the storms. Uh, 
the 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 the, the average uh, mid-level uh, pattern uh, fit where the storms went. The, the the troughiness on the east coast and the ridge over northern Mexico into Texas uh, uh, basically set up such that nothing was going to come out of the Caribbean uh, moving northward on average. And the weaker than normal Bermuda Azores high gave plenty of opportunities for recurvature of the storms that formed in the Atlantic, which is what happened. Uh, and you would expect to something like it because track forecasting and understanding of why it goes is one of our great achievements in hurricane forecasting. Uh, speaking for those of us that live near water on the Texas coast, this is not a pattern I would mind seeing every year <laughs> other than the heat it generates. Uh, moisture is another important factor. This was an interesting chart on the uh, 700 millibar relative humidity. Uh, Average over the peak of the season was very moist across the main development region and most of the North Atlantic and uh, abnormally dry across the Caribbean and most of the Gulf of Mexico. And I think the subsidence and the pattern that was set up had a lot to do with that, uh, uh, the way that averaged out over the season. Got anything else here? Uh, death toll so far, the, the direct deaths are... Uh, are low, much lower than uh, on an average season, uh, uh, just slightly like 12 people and uh, indirect deaths. I think they're a lot higher than that. I think it takes a lot longer after the season to document that. And uh, the studies of Ed Rappaport and others have, are really starting to point out that we need to get more uh, intentional on finding out how that works so that we make maybe come up with better advice for people to help prevent that happening. And the dollar losses was uh, uh, much less than it's been in a, almost a decade, uh, which is always a, a welcome sight. Uh, well, a bunch of Dr. Phil's observations. I'm not going to read the fine print there, but it, it's always worthwhile. We'll, we'll hear from him in April <laughs> on that. Uh, quick, quick look at the Eastern Pacific. Uh, it behaved like a El Nino year. They tend to have more, more storms than normal. During El Nino years, obviously, it's uh, the, the warmer uh, equatorial ocean waters of an El Nino uh, uh, relate to their warm water in there. And uh, and sure enough, they had more storms. But the, the, the big news will come out of that are the two major landfalls, uh, Lydia and Otis, in October. Uh, these storms were uh, uh, in the top 10 list of uh, strongest hurricanes to make landfall. In Mexico, Lydia, what, other than the people that were hit by it, won't be re remembered much, mainly because of Otis. Otis was just unbelievable. Uh, uh, it's the highest wind re uh, recorded in Mexico and one of the highest winds probably recorded anywhere in a, in a tropical cyclone. Uh, currently listed at 50 deaths, uh, though the comments from the, the people that do that kind of work said there's likely more, especially in the indirect uh, realm, at least $10 billion in damage. Uh, 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 Acapulco is historically uh, rare for any kind of a direct landfall, much less of Cat 5. <clears throat> Brian and I were talking the previous history. We hadn't seen anything uh, higher than a Category 1 in there. Uh, and uh, some of the wind engineers have pointed out that these buildings are designed to handle earthquakes. And unfortunately, the same... Uh, use of lighter materials and flexibility and stuff like that that works for earthquakes is is woefully uh, understressed for 
for hurricanes. So these frontline hotels were eviscerated by those high winds. I mean, the, wind, the winds were measured at Cat 5 at the surface. And we all know how much higher it gets as you go up. I can't imagine what it would have been like riding a storm out in one of these. Morgerman probably would have liked it, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this will be the, uh, this is already a topic of discussion amongst a lot of the people uh, that I, I keep in touch with about the the in, un, incredible rapid intensification and, and the unfortunate, uh, basically dismal failure of, of all our sophisticated models to catch it. I mean, the uh, 24 hours before landfall, none of the models were forecasting anything above a Category 1 hurricane. And you prepare very differently for a Category 1 hurricane than you do a Category 5. Uh, the why, I'm not, I don't, uh, uh, Brian, you and others may, may want to be able to discuss that. I'm not comfortable, I don't have any idea. So I'm waiting to see what the hard research that comes up with before really coming up with an explanation other than speculation. But picture this uh, happening as a storm approaches the Gulf Coast and a major metropolitan area. Uh, most of them want evacuations to start in the 48-hour time frame. Uh, it, it's impossible. You, what are you going to do? You put people on the road, they're not going to get out, and the hurricane hits, they'll be in, in harm's way. You leave them there, and now they're at risk of the storm surge. It, it, is, it really is the nightmare scenario that Eric Blake uh, uh, so correctly mentioned in his cyclone discussion right before landfall. Hey, can I uh, add something, Bill? Yeah, please. Um, I I think it's important to realize that it, it sounds, okay, this is Acapulco, it's South Mexico, and it's not the U.S., whatever. Um, but it's still not that different. We, the, the National Hurricane Center is still the one responsible for making the forecast for it. The hurricane models that are run are the same hurricane models that would be run if it were heading for the U.S. There's nothing different. Um the only difference, and I don't even know if this would have helped, um, is we didn't really have aircraft reconnaissance in it until the afternoon before it hit. And you know, at that point, there's only so much input that that has in the models. It doesn't matter at that point almost. Um, so you know, if if this same storm were headed for, let's say, Texas or Florida, um, we almost certainly would have had aircraft in it for. Um, basically since it formed, since it came within range. Um, and maybe that would have helped the the forecast models. Uh, that's to, to be determined too. I'm sure that's actually going to be a study is what did the lack of aircraft data do to hurt the model performance in this case? But yeah, but somebody is going gonna, is gonna to do a, a, a inject simulated data, like what they would expect to find to see what would happen. Yeah. As if they had had a recon in there, and uh, uh, to confirm your point, I think one of the uh, key reasons uh, uh, NAC was able to successfully forecast RI with Hurricane Harvey was based on 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 the uh, recon data getting into the models and getting, uh, 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 especially with the ship's data, getting very good uh, uh, signal that there's going to be RI. Yeah. But it, it, it is scary. I mean, I, as someone who lives right on a hurricane-prone coastline, to think that you could go from a tropical storm to a Category 5 
in that sort of a time and have it be totally unforecast. I mean, it, it just, it's like the, it's a worst nightmare times two in that case, like, okay, not only do you have rapid intensification, but completely unexpected rapid intensification. Yeah. I mean, if we're already getting, you get the, at, on a good evacuation order, you get 70% compliance, uh, a storm that's not forecast to be big. You're not going to get anywhere near that many people leaving. Uh, another point, I think, on that we've we've gotten kind of giddy because we've hit several of these storms that have rapidly intensified over the last uh, five or six years. But uh, when you look at the data, somebody pointed out, uh, I forgot which article I was reading, that uh, it's uh, we've we've improved the skill from twelve percent to thirty two percent. That's that, those are not the kind of numbers you invest money in. Uh, we still have a long way to go. Uh, to get there. So it, mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 I think I, I'm glad they still have the the focus on for, uh, improving forecasts for rapid intensification. So they have the the funding and, and people looking at it to make it make a dent. Uh, anything else to add, uh, Brian? I'll kick us out of the stop share for or the share for now so we can look at that. Um. I think one one storm that stood out too, especially during in in El Nino year, was um, Lee, which was a Category Five hurricane in the main development region. That's so that you know only about two ish percent of tropical cyclones become Category Five hurricanes in the Atlantic in the record. I mean, going back to when it's a reliable record, um, so it's it's exceptional to happen at all, let alone during an El Nino year and right. Just, just east of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think another another story that'll come out, but I think I I think it'd be best discussed after the Hurricane Center has done their verification uh, statistic report. But I think I got my subjective feeling was that this this will not be this will not come out as a banner year for forecasts uh, on the system. We had a whole bunch of. Uh, storms that were difficult to forecast, and it'll result in, in errors that may be a little larger than what we normally see. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran the uh, the verification stats, at least based on the uh, working mm -hmm. best track, and it, usually it doesn't change that much uh, when, once the final best track is complete. Um, but working off, off of what we have now, um, the intensity errors are actually lower than their own uh, five-year mean. So you take you know all, all the hurricane centers own forecasts over the past five years. And at every lead time from uh, 12 hours out to 120 hours, um, the, the mean intensity error was lower than their five-year average. But you flip that around the track, and basically at every lead time it was worse than their own five-year average yeah okay yeah well i'm gonna uh, uh toss it back to tim for a break and then we'll uh we'll uh bring mark suddeth in on uh his work and see how that season went for him I hope absolutely yeah, I can't wait to hear what mark has to say as well we'll continue the conversation before we get to that let's thank those who make this 
this uh, event a possibility each and every week. Start with USAA. Thank you, USAA. We appreciate you for all you do for uh, National Tropical Weather Conference. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Hope to see everybody there in person in April. We'll be at the Courtyard Marriott Hotel right there on the beach once again uh, for three or four days of meetings, including a student conference at the beginning of that. Uh, I think it's going to be really a fascinating week once again. The season was unique enough uh, even though it was less active on the U.S. coast, it was unique enough. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, Weatherboy, thanks to Weatherboy for bringing college students to the conference every year, uh, providing scholarships for college students from across the country to come join us. Be watching for the contest again in uh, 2024 to bring college students in. It's already available. And finally, the Weather Company. The Weather Company provides graphics systems for television stations around the nation, around the world. So thanks to the Weather Company for being part of what we do. Um, the season's behind us, you know, and, and you know, Mark, Mark Suttoth, Mark, you, you chase and document landfalling hurricanes, mainly in the U.S., um, did you feel like it was a vacation this year? We didn't have to chase a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Adalia, um, for the United States and then Ophelia here in my backyard, Adalia in Florida, but I went over to California, which, uh, let's don't leave that out. You know, we, we had Hillary that came in and, um, in some regards going to California is like visiting another country in Texas is too. I mean, <laughs> Texas has the slogan, right? It's like a whole other country. Um, so I went from Palm Springs to South Texas for Harold. So Hillary to Harold. And then of course we had Adalia and Adalia was the, you know, most impactful. Um, and then right here in my backyard, we had Ophelia, which kind of formed pretty quickly uh, and almost became a hurricane, put a pretty good storm surge into parts of the Pamlico River area, Noose River, the usual areas, Washington, North Carolina, New Bern, all places where I grew up and know very, very well. Um, but what I want to do, if I can share my screen, uh, I want to show you, let's see if this will work, bingo. So for Adalia, that's what I'm going to cover mostly here. Uh, I was down in this area of Florida. Of course, we were pretty worried about Tampa. Uh, for obvious reasons early on, but then it, you know, it became apparent that the center would come in north of the Tampa Bay area. So we set up equipment across, uh, let's go back to the map, a, a pretty good area of Florida in the Big Bend from Cedar Key up to Steenhatchee, Horseshoe Beach area, and really focused on that because the storm surge looked like it could be really significant and uh, of course, we had our two weather stations, our mobile weather stations, and this is what one of those looks like. If I can get Dropbox to cooperate, um, this is something that we've been doing for a number of years, trying to capture wind data in conjunction with the visual data. And then when we can do it both at the same time, this is not a picture that I took. This is a picture from the camera that's mounted about 15 feet away from the anemometer. And there's a pressure sensor in there as well. And um, so I'm going to talk about wind data just a little bit because that's the, you know, the, the cameras, you set them up and you catch what you catch. But the wind data, wind is very difficult to measure. I know that sounds like, well, how, how come? But, you know, you've got to cite it properly. You have mechanical issues that can happen, local effects of terrain, the way the eye wall is, your placement. 
you know, there's just a lot that goes into capturing reliable wind data. And I just want to show you first the wind and pressure relationships here. This is from Cedar Key. And we had the anemometer on that bridge there that leads into Cedar Key. So it's probably, I would say, four meters above sea level. So about 12 feet, uh, the anemometer height, maybe a little bit higher. And you notice here that this is in miles per hour. Our peak wind, these are the gusts here in the red, we never went over 60. So I want you to remember that. We never recorded a wind speed at that anemometer over 60 miles per hour. And the sustained wind, there was one observation there where the one-minute average wind was just a little bit more than tropical storm force. All right, so let's just remember that, okay? So let's clear this, go back to the Dropbox, if this will cooperate. And then let me show you some of this video here from that area. So Cedar Key, um, 60 mile per hour peak wind gust. This is just about a mile, if that, from that anemometer. This is the day before. And we had a GoPro camera set out there. And this is the day of landfall. So you say, well, that's a pretty big surge. There's parts of that building that's a tiki bar uh, floating away in that surge you know, 60 miles per hour, and then you get this pretty big surge, the two don't seem to match up. And that just shows you that surge in the different areas of the coastline are gonna be very different from hurricane to hurricane. The eye wall of what was left of it, of Idalia, uh, made landfall up near Keaton Beach. We didn't have a camera or an anemometer there, unfortunately, but we came close. So let me show you, we had one at Steenhatchee, and that was much closer to the eye wall. So we had a, a sharper pressure gradient, and uh, I don't remember the exact low pressure that we got. I should probably have noted that, but certainly sub 980, uh, but we didn't get in the eye, but pretty close. And it's a sharper gradient there overall, or, or just the overall passage there, as you can see, a sharper V-shape. But then our wind gusts, more of them above 60, but still the sustained only at about 40, 42 miles per hour. Yet being a little bit closer to the center, um, the, the effects from the surge on the Steenhatchee were, I think, more remarkable. And you can even see a little bit more of the wind. This is uh, early in the morning of landfall and the river is flowing like it normally should here out towards the Gulf of Mexico. But as the center approaches, the surge is shoved into the Big Bend area. Now the surge, this is not time-lapse either. This is real time. See that car driving by there. Who's out in a major hurricane driving like that next to the river? But anyway, you know, even 60 miles per hour, and it doesn't even look that windy in the video, but look at that surge. So that's what's really, really important that we learn from this is that wind is important, obviously, but the impacts, in this case, the surge was such a big deal. Luckily, the Big Bend is sparsely populated compared to Pinellas County, Hillsborough County. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, but look at all of this stuff happening, and yet the peak wind, and you can see the anemometer just on the left there, was only 60 miles per hour or so. And I just thought that was really interesting because in our Michael video <clears throat> from 2018, 
Sorry, I'm still having the leftovers of the flu here. Um, the video is much more violent, and the surge is also much more violent. Obviously, that was a Category 5. And um, I just thought it was really fascinating, though, just to see how much surge can vary based on where we are along the coast. And uh, another example, this is back in Cedar Key, right at the waterfront. This is somewhat of a mystery, uh, sort of baked into this video. You got this Cadillac um, that pulls into the shot the day before landfall. Uh, this lady gets out, she takes a couple of pictures, and then she like disappears and leaves the Cadillac there and we, we see what happens. But again, we got a record surge in this area. The eye passed fairly well to the north and there's different wind speeds that were recorded down there that were above 60 miles per hour. We only had one point where we were obviously, but nothing, my, and this is a great point here, no category three wind anywhere near Cedar Key. Yet the storm surge, one could argue, was close to catastrophic. I mean, it didn't wipe out everything, but that's a pretty nasty surge coming into the Big Bend that had that surge come into Tampa Bay, obviously <clears throat> would have been, you would have had a, a much more than a couple billion dollar hurricane, right? Um, so to me, Adalia was a very interesting storm, uh, hurricane event overall for a number of reasons, the least of which that, of course, that eye wall collapsed those last few hours. Um, you know, it was a fairly small core. And I think that explains a, a big uh, reason why our two anemometers, as close as the one at uh, Horseshoe Beach was, or Steenhatchee was to the eye and the eye wall, you know, close doesn't count, you know? And so it also says, hey, we need more instrumentation out there. We got plenty of these cameras have something like 20 of these live cams and GoPros. But, and I think Brian would second this, that wind data especially is very difficult to obtain for a lot of reasons. Technically, like I said, you know, there's gremlins that are always trying to get you. You got to sight it properly. You know, you have mesovortices if you're in that eye wall. Um, there's just a lot of complexities, but I love the challenge and we're going to keep pushing forward. Now we got, we've got four of these weather stations that we can put out, but even four, you know, talking about observations and, you know, uh, University of Florida still has their coastal monitoring program. I work with uh, Dr. Ryan Miris up here at UNC Wilmington, who's a coastal engineer that works for some of those people. You think about Dr. Forrest Masters and what they're doing. I think Clemson hopefully still has their wind team. I'm not sure. A few of the storm chasers have vehicle-mounted anemometers. Everything helps, but man, the lack of really solid wind data bothers me. And I want to try to help solve that problem going forward. Again, the camera stuff, I don't want to say we've mastered it, but we've gotten really good at it over the last 19 years. Hard to believe it's been that long. Um, so in that regard, a slow season hurts scientists trying to capture data because you don't get to keep practicing and getting better at it. So it's a weird double-edged sword. It's great for the public, absolutely. And it's always going to be, hey, we're going to defer to that. It's, a, it's two thumbs up that nobody in South Texas really remembers that it was Harold, right? Um, but 
when you have a very busy season like 2020 or 2017, you get to practice a lot and you get better at it. So, you know, we got to use some off-season stuff, maybe a couple of big nor'easters, uh, maybe a derecho or something in the springtime in the plains to keep testing and keep getting better because that wind data on the hurricane front, that's what I really want to start focusing on. We're going to see Kilt still do the camera stuff, don't get me wrong, but I want more wind data, more data, more data. I think we can all agree to that. Oh, did you? I I had forgotten from earlier this year. Uh, were you using any new equipment this year, or was it the same stuff you've been using the last several? Mostly the same. We did introduce a couple of newer Wi-Fi cameras um, that we we use Nest cams for almost all of our live cams. But then we started using an Axis camera, just practicing again, getting you know, just in case Google decides to shut down Nest. December 31st or something, you never know what they're going to do. Uh, and then, you know, our, our live cams are are useless. Uh, but other than that, pretty much the same. Everything's a little bit smaller. Um, so it fits in the vehicle. We can put more stuff in the vehicle. The battery packs are a little bit better and smaller. But for the most part, everything's the same. Um, talking with Dr. Klotzbach, uh, our friend Phil, more pressure data, that's easy because we got these little $150 Kestrels that are pretty darn accurate. And of course, Josh uses Kestrels, as we all know, and he's got some great documentation over the years of pressure data in hurricanes outside the United States. But man, that wind data, you know, that's the big headline. Hurricanes equal wind in the public's perception. But the surge in Idalia was the big damage causer, you know? And so... Still, like, that's the conundrum. Like, there's all these impacts. Rain is a huge impact, obviously, um, and people don't think about that until it's too late. But there's just something about the wind. I think it goes back to the early days of me watching live coverage. We'll just call it network TV, so we don't single anybody out. And somebody's on there holding their hat. You know, like it's blowing so hard out here. It's like you're wearing a baseball hat. Like it can't be blowing that hard. Uh, or they didn't have a handheld anemometer. I remember Jeff Flock at CNN did during Hurricane Bertha. And as a kid, you know, growing up in the 80s at the advent of network hurricane coverage, I always wondered, well, how fast is it blowing? And so now all these years later at the ripe old age of 53, you know, I'm still trying to work on it. And you've got million dollar programs like I'm sure what University of Florida is doing has got a much bigger budget than me. And, and Bill doesn't. Is it Texas A&M that has like 48 of the stick nets? Or Texas, is it Texas yeah, Tech? But they, they're tied to their wind engineering aspects right. of, of their program and engineering up there. Yeah. And we still lack oh. really, really solid wind data. Here's just one more example of it. Michael, you know, we drove past the uh, coastal monitoring program, the Florida Coastal Monitoring Program, setting up their tower. Uh, out near the Air Force Base there in that open area of land um, along 98, like an hour before landfall. You know, like it can still catch even the great scientists. You think about Dr. Masters and his team, you know, and Michael was not thought it was going to do much. And so when it, it was apparent that it was, the people were scrambling. Um, and we had an anemometer in Panama City you know, on a bridge over there, and it recorded over 100 miles per hour. Anyway, the wind data, 
that's my next, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep fighting for it. I want to keep going. And we use the best anemometers, you know, those arm youngs, they're always calibrated. Um, you know, the surge stuff, the video in, is very helpful. Hurricane center watches it. You know, Fox weather has it on live where it's on our website. We tweet it, whatever, but that wind data, you know, before it's all said and done, I want to record reliable, useful wind data to go along with what we're doing. And we did an Adalia, but it was just surprising that they were so low, those values, and yet we had such a high surge. Yes, that is interesting. Now, Mark, I, th I think one, a, a phrase that I like to get out as often as I can that fits in perfectly with everything you said is there's more to the story than the category. Yeah. And if people could just grasp that, like wind is often not your biggest problem in a hurricane, right. like often, but that's the whole category system, which mm -hmm. that's, that's the flaw of it is everyone's so tuned into, oh, it's only a category one. Well, yeah. okay. And then what happens when your house washes away from the storm surge? Right. I mean, Ophelia is a great example. It was a tropical storm. And I'm standing there, and people call it in North Carolina, Little Washington. It's Washington, North Carolina. And I'm at the Pamlico River, and there's neighborhoods that are flooded. And, you know, it caused pretty significant damage to those people. Water is very uh, incessantly, you know, it's, it's a, a very penetrative effect. You know, an inch of water in your house is very damaging. And when you have inches plural, that's even more so. And people were you know, very much caught by surprise at the surge in Washington, you know, because Ophelia was just a tropical storm. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that went through Isabel, some of them, you know, and Florence more recently, 2018, which was a record surge, especially in New Bern, you know, where the surge went over our camera. That was up at 11 feet. Um, but yeah, you know, category, schmattagory, right? That'd be a good t-shirt. <laughs> We are going to make some t-shirts next year that's going to say rain is an impact. And we have a graphics guy, really talented uh, young man named Tim, who's going to help us design that t-shirt so it looks cool. You know, so, but like rain, I think is the most underappreciated impact. Yeah. Uh, we only need to look at Harvey to, you know, understand that in Florence in 2018. But 2023 was just interesting you know watching everything setting up from april on you know watching brian's tweets about by the way i will sorry elon i'll never call it the other thing is twitter to me forever <laughs> um and uh michael lowry and you know just watching the evolution of the very warm sea surface temperatures in the atlantic knowing that that el nino was coming and then just the confidence especially of dr klotzbach and then eventually uh, NOAA, and there's other agencies too. University of Arizona, by the way, hats off to them. A, they're number one in college basketball. So my Duke Blue Devils lost to them early, but that's a story for another podcast, right? <laughs> but they did a pretty good forecast. Theirs was way overdone, I think, if you what, you know, early on. But um, University of Arizona, Colorado State, NOAA, uh, TSR out of London, and there's other agencies, of course. Pretty bold to say in the face of what was going to be a big El Nino that we could have an above average season. And I think that's good that we can trust that, you know, but then you have your Otis's that, well, we trusted the science and the science let us down. So we got humbled a little bit. Um, so a very interesting year when all is said and done and a lot to unpack 
at, at conferences like what's coming up next April, right? And in research and everything else that Brian will be busy for years. And <laughs> you know, these, these types of seasons are helpful even when you have shortcomings. I, I, related to your um, determination to get better wind measurements, which absolutely it's, it's a challenge. Um, there's a paper from 2014 uh, that David Nolan and others here at the University of Miami wrote that was uh, uh, on the limits of estimating the maximum wind speeds in hurricanes. And they utilized a very realistic, high-resolution numerical model of a hurricane and could place make-believe instruments anywhere they wanted, as many of them as they wanted, and just say, what did the wind do here? What did it do? You know? Um, and I brought it up just cause I was, I couldn't remember the exact numbers, but let me just read a couple sentences from the abstract. Uh, the, the results show that a single perfect anemometer experiencing a direct hit by the right side of the eye wall will uster will underestimate the actual peak intensity by 10 to 20%. Even in an unusually large number example, three to five experiencing direct hits by the storm together will underestimate the peak winds by five to 10%. So the, the, the wind field has a lot of noise in it. It's not yeah. like, it's not just, Oh, it's strong in the eyeball and it decays away. Mm-hmm. It's very noisy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw that in Laura just visually from our camera. we just, let's think about our GoPro camera that we had that was aimed at the, um, what was it, the Capital One building in uh, Lake. Lake Charles? And you could see that noise just in the video. And that's why we talk about video being data, that you would get these periods of incredible downburst that you could see scrape the building. You know, like it looked like an invisible hand like King Kong did it or something. Seriously, it was unbelievable. And then all the chasers that were down there that got video of it too, some of them got hurt, uh, and luckily no one was seriously injured that I'm aware of. But that's just one scenario from what was a very intense hurricane. Um, and that's just a localized area down there in downtown Lake Charles. You think about how large that eye wall was of of Laura. You know, yeah, Brian, here. I mean, that's a great uh, – if, if you could send me a, a link to that, I would, I'd love to read that. Um, yeah, you could have hundreds of wind towers perfectly sighted. You know, it is tough. It really is. Yeah. We're coming up on, on the end of the program. I, I, we're not going to end it just yet, but I'm, I'm, my question for Brian is, is we talk about unusual versus unprecedented. They're two different things. You know, no doubt the season was unusual. Um, those water temperatures, as far as records go back, unprecedented. Talk about this season, unusual versus unprecedented, and how how was it? Um, I would put it in the unusual bin. I mean, there there was nothing in terms of like the observed activity, there was nothing that really stood out as being unprecedented. Um, I think the unprecedented part, which you just mentioned was the ocean temperatures and this fight against the wind shear of an El Nino, which didn't really materialize. And that, yeah, we, we, we went into the season kind of blind I, th- I think bill mentioned that at the start that, that there's there was no historical 
um, benchmark to look back at and say, well, the last time this happened, you know, dot, 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 uh, there, there, there wasn't a last time. So this was that aspect of the season was unprecedented. Um, you know, the, in terms of this storm and this storm and this storm and looking at those, I wouldn't say anything stands out as, as unprecedented in that regard. Interesting. Interesting. And Mark, in the data that you that you got using equipment, you know, as you said, it's nothing new equipment wise. But did you see anything new that really jumped out at you this year in, in, in what you saw with the Dahlia and what you saw in Ophelia and the other storms? No, nothing new, nothing surprising, except, I mean, really seeing a tropical storm in Palm Springs. That was pretty wild, um, honestly. Yeah, and I don't, you know, let's don't forget that. I know we're almost you know, out of time, but. That was an impactful tropical cyclone for uh, part of the United States that doesn't usually get them. And, um, you know, they had some flooding and uh, wind damage and, you know, whatever uh, coming out of the East Pacific, which is a whole, you know, look what happened there with Otis and whatnot. But no, nothing really. Again, we didn't have a lot of landfalls, which, again, great for the public. Enjoy it because... We can all see into the future with these climate models what might be coming next year. Might. We don't know for sure. I think this could be a different conversation a year from now. I really do. We'll see if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, I've, those of you who go to the conference know the brothers Smith are there. My brothers Dave and Steve are always there. And who knew that the one that lives in Southern California would have more tropical activity than the one on the Texas coast and the one on the Florida coast? Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> so... His his, his uh, family and friends won't let him come to the conference anymore because that's why they think you had it. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. Um, let me go back to Brian. Um, you know, final thoughts on, on the season, Brian. Um, you know, it's 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 over. Um, hopefully it's over. Nothing in December. So what are your final thoughts on 2023? Well, I would say we we had a learning experience with it. We got to witness what happens when you have an El Nino competing against a very warm ocean, which as I pointed, you know, Bill and I said, we didn't really know what to expect from that going into it. And now that it's over, it, you know, it wasn't above average season by really any metric you look at. I didn't mention uh, the accumulated cyclone energy or ACE that ended up about 120% of average. So by that metric also, it was an active season. Um, so it's just it's just a season we we can learn from, and fortunately, despite all that activity, we only had one hurricane landfall in, in the U.S. So uh, you know we, we don't ever like to see that at all, but one certainly beats six. That comes back down to no matter how, how active the season was, it only takes one, right? Right. That's bottom line there. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Mark, what are your thoughts on the end of the season? It's over. Look yeah, I, mean, I think one thing, sort of a cautionary tale, is. Otis showed us that we cannot get too comfortable with, you know, what do we call that hubris? Mm -hmm. And that was a really big problem in 1900, wasn't it, Bill? That's all I'm going to say. It's a problem every year. (laughs) We have incredible technology and people that interpret that technology. And when someone like Eric Blake has to write what he wrote, that shows that we still have a we still have a hurricane problem, you know, despite everything that we've got to throw at it science-wise. Otis, uh, I hope, you know, it could be a big learning tool going forward um, because, you know, the rest is self-explanatory. 
what would be the narrative today if Otis had hit Miami or Houston or New Orleans or, you know, somewhere on the U.S. coast? How, what will we be talking about today? It, it, it hit off the Puerto, we talk about it, but it's Mexico, you know, and, 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 and God bless them. But imagine if that had happened in the U.S. You know, if it, if we, you know, you, you kind of talk about what if it does, what if it did, what if that had happened? We'd be, that's all we'd be talking about. That's all we'd be talking about. Nothing else would matter. There would be an enormous amount of money being dumped into hurricane research. <laughs> and that's so backwards, but that's a story for anyway. <laughs> Reactionary. I mean, yes, yes. Bill, uh, wrap up the season. What are, what are you? What do we learn today? What do we learn in the last six months? Well, the the seasonal forecasting is getting better, but I'm already getting asked about next year, and this is my response. <laughs> 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 thanks for letting me do this every week guys well, well bill thank you thank you a very important part of this your insight and your knowledge has really gone a long way for great questions and great uh, we just really appreciate it and, and guys thanks for being with us today and uh, more than once through the season we appreciate that we hope to see you guys in april in person um, and all of you watching at home, uh, the regulars that are with us, uh, Casper and James and everybody else, uh, thanks for that. Hope to see Kylie, maybe winning one of those scholarships from Weatherboy. Um, hope to have you all there. Um, this program possible because of our sponsors, USAA. Of course. Thank you, USAA. Thanks to the South Pottery Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. We couldn't do it without you. And we look forward to seeing everybody at South Pottery Island again. Uh, Weatherboy, thanks for those scholarships. And the Weather Company, thanks for the, all that you've done. And the others who've been part of what we do each and every year. We appreciate that. All the guests we've had this year, we've had dozens and dozens of guests, some amazing topics uh, every aspect of hurricanes, I feel like. If you're watching and there's some aspect we didn't touch on, let us know. We'll try to touch on it next time around uh, and next year. So that's it for the 2023 hurricane season. It's 11 o'clock. We've been going for an hour, 11 o'clock Central Time. Uh, we'll be back um, first week of June, probably, if not before. Maybe do something before the conference just to let you know about that. In the meantime, take care. Thanks for being with us. Happy holidays, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.